You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Again, it's great to see all of you here this morning and those of you who are joining us in our online community, either watching or listening to this. We are still in this season, very deliberately so, of of prayer and listening to the Lord and seeking the Lord together as a church family. And we're at day 14 of that. And if you have not yet joined us in that, we have prayer guides available online as well as uh, out at our resource table. And you can still do that. But this morning, we would like to pray together as we prepare to dive into God's word now. And this is what brings us to day 14. So thank the Lord for who he has brought to grace through the years, which includes you. The global virus has made it very challenging to be together, but know that you are valued by our Lord and by us, and we really do need each other. So pray that we would become even more hospitable, diverse, multi-ethnic, and multi-generational, and I'd like to lead us now in praying for just that. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each person who's in the room here, each person who is listening or watching this in our online community. Lord, we are so grateful that you have brought us together to be your church. And Lord, together, as your church, we ask that you would grow us, that you would deepen our love for you, our love for one another, that your spirit would continue to transform us and make us into the people that you have called and created us to be. And Lord, we do want to be more diverse and multi-generational and multi-ethnic. We believe that your gospel is good news for everyone, and it is the hope that we all need. So we pray that you will continue to grow us not only in our love for you and one another, but in our reach in this city and in this community and even around the world. That Lord, we would be faithful in introducing people to you, helping people experience you and grow in you. And Lord, again, I thank you for each person who is listening to this, watching this, and is in the room here today. And we ask all of this in your name, amen. So. We're gonna dive into God's word, and as we do so now, um, I was reminded of something that happened to me just a couple weeks ago, actually. So some of you may or may not have had this experience, some of you have. We're on this trip, we go up north with um, Jamie and me and my, Jamie's sister, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, and we're, we're headed up to see family in, in Washington State a couple weeks ago, and we're coming back, and we're just entering um, downtown Olympia, And I'm moving along with the flow of traffic in my traffic speed, speed of my car, and all of a sudden, here's this police car who comes up in the other lane, and again, maybe you have or haven't had this experience. Unfortunately, I have more than I'd like to admit, but I'm watching my rearview mirror, and I'm watching him as he's driving up, and all of a sudden, he looks over at my car, and he does this, and then he drives, and then he does this again, and then he really looks. And it was that point I knew uh, something's not right. Because sure enough, he then slows down, and that's never a good sign, and then he pulls in behind me, and that's never a good sign, and then he lights me up. His lights go on, I go, oh, great. And so I pull over. Now, you have to understand some backstory to this. The last time that I can remember that Jamie's sister and husband rode with us was like, 
a couple years ago when we had the privilege of going to Montana and we rented this big Chevy Suburban together to, to do that and to pack everything in there to go to my nephew's wedding. And I got to officiate that wedding and it was just rich. It was so much fun. But we're coming back and there's this interesting dynamic that happens when you cross over from Montana and Idaho and that is the speed changes. It goes from like 90 to, you know, 70 or something like that. I don't remember because I wasn't paying attention. And so this last time that my um, in-laws had been with me, we're, we're, we're going down this hill and Jamie's saying, honey, I think you're going a little fast. I think you need to watch your speed. And I, oh yeah, I sure will. No, not really. And then here's this officer waiting just for me <laughs> at the bottom of the hill. And so of course he lights me up and I do get a ticket at that point. So you have to understand, every time my brother-in-law and sister-in-law ride with me, we get pulled over by a police officer. They have affectionately named me Pastor Leadfoot. And so they're assuming that that's why I'm getting pulled over, but I actually wasn't speeding. You see, the officer comes up to the window and uh, as we're stopped there and, and um, asks for you know, some identification and what have you. And so I ask him, you know, why, why did you stop us? And he says, we don't know who you are and we don't know whose car this is. Because you see, this car was a car that we bought um, used, but earlier this summer, filed our paperwork with Oregon DMV months ago, and the license plates still haven't come. So there was nothing identifying our car. Now, in fairness, Governor Brown issued an executive order some months ago, and those of you who maybe have purchased or, or sold a car know this, but she asked law enforcement in the state of Oregon to not issue tickets for about six months in terms of expired trip permits or cars like ours that don't yet have their license plates or whatever. So I thought, well, we don't need a trip permit then. Not a good idea. And so this officer says, I need to know who you are and whose car this is. So I'm prepared. I have this letter that I'd actually printed off from Governor Brown with the executive order and I have you know, my insurance and I hand him my, my driver's license and I made the mistake of saying, well in Oregon, the governor said you know, we don't need to have any registration because our DMV is so backed up that it's taking months for license plates to get issued and he says, this is Washington. <laughs> we have different laws here. Oh, that was not the tact I should take. Yes sir, okay sir, you know, he goes back and thankfully I didn't get a ticket for the record. Let it be noted, I did not get a ticket. But as I was thinking about this, I thought, what a metaphor to really set up where we're going in this passage this morning, because this passage is all about who we are and whose we are. You see, last week we returned to our This We Believe series, and we are going back and looking at very deliberately what is it that we say we believe the Bible teaches and declares. We have that captured in this thing we called our statement of faith or our doctrinal statement. And Gary last week helped us look at who God is. Well this week, very necessarily so, we're looking at who we are. Who does scripture, who does God say we are? What is our true identity? And it, there, there's more necessary time for us to be wrestling with this than now. Simply because there are so many voices that are speaking into our lives trying to tell us who we are. And here's one of those voices. Now again, I wanna say this very deliberately, I am not making a political statement, I'm making a spiritual one. But this is a statement that our vice president said in a video that she recorded, a NASA video, for some school children 
about two weeks ago. And this could be her, this could be a celebrity, this could be an athlete, this could be any of these voices that are constantly trying to speak into our lives to define who we are and to tell us who we are. But this is what she said, and it so powerfully captures something we need to do business with, and this is what it says. You know, one of the most important pieces of advice that I can offer you guys, and remember she's saying this to school kids, I want you to really remember this. Never let anybody tell you who you are. You tell them who you are. Never let anybody suggest to you that you are what they think you should be. You tell them who you are and who you know you are and what you intend to be. Got that? Now again, in fairness, there's, there's layers to this. But the bullseye value behind this that the meta message in this message is this, you define who you are. No one else gets to define you. You define who you are. So is that what we believe as Jesus followers? No, actually not, because we believe God declares who we are that our identity is found in what he says about us. And so this is what we believe really about humanity. And again, this is lifted from our statement of faith and we'll do business with most of this, but it says this, Adam and Eve, humanity, were created in the image of God to enjoy his fellowship and to fulfill his will on earth. They sinned and thereby incurred spiritual and physical death. All human beings are born with a sinful nature and commit sinful acts in thought, word, and deed. Apart from salvation in Christ, all people will experience separation from God forever. And that last statement there we did some business with last week with Gary. But we're gonna take a look at the realities that are captured for us here because they are life-changing realities as God defines and tells us who we really are. And so to do business with this, we're gonna go back to the very beginning. We're gonna go back to the book of beginnings. We're gonna go to Genesis. And as we do this, we're gonna be jumping around a little bit. So I'd give you a disclosure right out at the top here that we're not gonna comprehensively be able to cover these passages. We did a far more thorough treatment of these passages in our Genesis series. You can go to our sermon archives on our website and go back and listen to those. But we are gonna look at what God says about our identity and we start here. God has created the heavens and the earth and plant life and animal life, and then he creates humanity. And this is what we wanna start our time with here in his word. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And that verse goes on to say, and it's the only time in creation that God speaks to anybody, and he's speaking and blessing humanity. He's speaking directly to them. So, notice anything about this passage? A few things highlighted there. We talked last week about the reality that God is triune, that he is one God, but three persons. And everything in this that I have highlighted is plural. Elohim, the plural name for God. This is talking about God creating us in his image, which is fantastic. 
I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And we'll just take a look at this and, and tease some of this out, and there's so much more we could talk about here, but being made in the image of God means that we're body and spirit. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter four, it tells us that God is spirit. But God became one of us when the second person of the Trinity, the Son, came to earth as Jesus Christ, and he was body and spirit, just like, just like we are. So there's a physical dimension to us, obviously, but there's also a spiritual dimension to us. We are relational, just like God is. He created us to relate to him and to one another. We're rational, well, most days, right? We, we, we reason, we, we can choose. We're creative, we can build, create, innovate. We can appreciate beauty and recognize beauty for what it is, but we're also moral. We have the capacity to choose right and wrong. And this is just some of what it means to be made in the image of, of, of God. But this has profound implications for us, and one of those is, is that life matters. Your life matters. My life matters. Your life has definition. You have purpose. You have dignity. You have value, and it's so important that you hear that this morning because that should be the lens through which we see all life. That's why we have something to say about abortion and euthanasia and assisted suicide. Because God values life and he values your life and he values my life and it actually is a game changer for how we look at other people. Once again, we jump to the New Testament and the Gospel of James, Gospel of James, the letter of James has something to say about this. In talking about the necessity of controlling and directing and guiding what we say with our tongue, it says with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have what? Been made in God's likeness, which is another way of saying being made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. When is the last time you looked at someone other than yourself as image of God. And how should that meaningfully impact our relationships with everybody? But this isn't just the only reality here. Look at what he talks about. Look about what the word says about us as men and women. We are created equal, but we are different by design. And there is this movement that has gathered momentum for decades now in our culture to completely eliminate the differences between men and women. And it can't be done because it's not reality. What we are, we are actually different. I mean, we had such a fun discussion about this recently in our small group where we were going through this, this short marriage series together and we were looking at just some of the fundamental differences between men and women. And again, we're speaking in generalities here, but by and large, Women, neurologically, have a different brain than men do, and that is true. It's much more interconnected than men's brains are, and we were talking about this reality that one of the benefits of, of, and blessings of how men are wired is that we can really focus, we can, we can really compartmentalize, and again, I'm speaking in generalities, but that's usually primarily true, and that men have this nothing box that we can go to. And for some of us, it's larger than other boxes, and some of us spend a lot of time there, and it's absolutely confounding and befuddling and puzzling and 
a lot of ladies don't get it because they don't seem to have a nothing box. How can you go to your nothing box? How can I ask you, what do you think about? And you say, nothing, and you really mean it. Okay, we're having a little fun with this, but the reality is we are of equal value in God's eyes. But praise God, he has made us different. And as men and women, we are unique and we are special. Yes, we're separate, but we're made to be together. And he created us to bless us. He wants to bless us. God wants to bless you and, and me. And with all that in mind now, if, as we jump back to the book of Genesis, based on these realities, Adam and Eve have everything they need to be fulfilled and blessed and to have purpose and they're in right relationship with God and right relationship with others. And they can have access to any of the things in the garden, any of the trees in particular. And God says, all but one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now we enter back into the story. And now the serpent comes, Satan. And it says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Nothing leading about that, right? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and God did say that, and you must not touch it, God did not say that, or you will die, God did say that. And now remember, as we follow the story in what precedes this. God gives this directive to Adam. Eve hasn't been created yet. And so presumably, Adam had passed this along to Eve. And maybe he's the one who said, you must not touch it. And she was repeating what had been told to her. Or maybe she elevated it to that. But she does a really good job of representing what God said. But look how the evil one takes this. He won't certainly die the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now there is so much we could talk about in that passage and we have in our previous Genesis series and I will steer you back to that. But for our purposes here, this is where sin and death and disease and destruction now enter the world. And what does Satan do? He goes after the goodness of God and he gets Adam and Eve to question that. Can you really trust what God says? And again, the meta message here is this. You decide what's right and wrong. You decide what's best for you. You don't let anyone tell you what to do. You figure that out for yourself. Does that sound like a message we just heard? that we hear constantly in our culture. You determine your identity. You define yourself. You determine what's right and wrong. And how well does that work out for Adam and Eve and us? Not real well. Because the spiritual reality is that apart from right relationship 
with God through knowing Jesus Christ, we are sinful by nature and by choice. We're hardwired to be selfish, to make broken choices, to decide right and wrong from ourselves and make a train wreck of that. And we also choose that. And this is so pervasive, it colors not just what we do or don't do, it's in our thoughts, it's in our motives, it's in our values. And I'll prove it to you. Where did you learn how to lie? Where did you learn how to be selfish? What class did you take that instructed you in that? Well, sociologists might say, oh, well, you know, that was learned through example or by cultural conditioning. Okay, well, let's take it a step further then. Names have been changed to protect the innocent. I have three kids. Jamie and I have three wonderful kids together, two daughters and a son. And when one of them was little, I mean, we're talking about barely able to stand, I'll never forget this defining moment where they were by our TV, and by our TV was a VCR. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, <laughs> sometime after color television and before the invention of the internet were VCRs. You can go to a museum and see one, but it's how we watched movies in that season, if it wasn't already on TV. And VCRs had this opening where you put the tape in in order to watch what you were gonna watch. And I remember our little one, I won't tell you which kid it was. Our little one was standing by that VCR, barely able to stand up. And I said, and they knew, do not put your hand inside the VCR. Don't, don't touch the VCR. Don't put your hand in it. And this little kid looked at me after I said that and went, where'd she learn that? I know, oops, oops. Now you got two choices. <laughs> I am so in trouble with my kids after this. Where did they, where did they learn that? Well, clearly from their mother, right? <laughs> Who's in this service and who I am now in trouble with as well. I might as well have the whole family upset with me. No, obviously not. They just knew how to do that. Who taught them how to do that? They have a sin nature, just like you and I do. Don't need to be taught that, knew how to do that. And the reality is for you and me that that little kid lives in all of us. None of us like to be told what to do. Have we not seen that on display these last couple years? And you pick the arena. I mean, we could go further and further with this, but we need to move on. Here's the reality. All of us are still made in the image of God. We were created in the image of God, but because of sin and the reality of sin and selfishness and brokenness, it's been marred. That image of God is marred. It is, it is distorted. And no amount of trying harder, working harder, being a good person, turning to empty religion is gonna change that because those changes aren't deep enough. So, for those of you who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have received him as your Lord and Savior, who love him, who follow him, who do know him, are you a sinner who is sometimes a saint? Or are you a saint who is sometimes a sinner? And it's a very fundamental question to do business with. And some of us might answer that thoughtfully by saying, well, it depends on the day. But what does God's word say? 
67 times in the New Testament, God's Word says that if you know and love Jesus Christ, you are not a sinner who is sometimes a saint. You are a saint who sometimes struggles with sin. And that difference is fundamental and significant when it comes to your identity and mine. If you know and love Jesus Christ, God's Word declares that you are a saint. Doesn't mean you're perfect, obviously. Doesn't mean that you don't struggle with sin, but it does mean that you have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. And it also means that God is in the process of calling forth his image in you and redeeming it and restoring it and repairing it. And that's very significant as well. You know, this word for saint takes us back to what we looked at last week with Gary, that it comes from the same root as the word for holy and the word for sanctified, which is a churchy word for that process of progressively becoming more like God, progressively becoming more the image that he's created us to be. And we looked at last week with Gary that the reality of defining holiness is that we are set aside for right relationship with God, or to put it another way, dedicated to Him. God wants us to be as dedicated to Him as He is to us. That's what it means to be holy. And what's so encouraging about this is that this means you really can do this. That if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a power and an empowerment through his Holy Spirit to be who God has created you to be. And too many of us don't believe that. You still view yourself as a sinner who is sometimes a saint. And that is absolutely not true. You have the power to live the life God wants you to. You have the power to do the hard thing at times, to do the right thing, and to do the blessed thing. Even when it's difficult, even when you don't feel like it, even when you're discouraged, even like it just doesn't make sense, you still have the power to choose to trust and obey God because he is calling forth what is already in you. He is redeeming and restoring and repairing his image in you. My friends, this was a game changer in my intimacy with the Lord and my growth with the Lord. When I began to begin, really, began, started the process of getting my arms around what this really meant in terms of my own growth as a Jesus follower. Because the reality of this is, no matter how difficult the situation is, no matter how tempting it is to respond in a broken way, to be selfish, to be self-serving, to not give someone else the benefit of the doubt, to hold a grudge, to not forgive, to be unkind, to be divisive, to be critical, to be cynical, all these things you fill in the blank, as difficult as it is at times to do business with that stuff and the gravitational pull to just go ahead and live in that brokenness, I don't have to live like that. Because your deepest desire in the moment, not necessarily the strongest desire, but the deepest desire that you will have if you are a Jesus follower in the moment when you are tempted to sin, you are tempted to live out selfishness and brokenness, is actually to trust and obey God. You have that power within you because he's redeeming and calling forth his image in me and you. You can do this. You can be a saint. You can live like a saint and find the blessing that's promised to you as a result. And this is why, back to Genesis. 
So God comes looking for Adam and Eve. He knows what they've done. He knows they've sinned. He knows they have broken everything. Relationship with him, relationship with each other, relationship with themselves, relationship with land. And he already is enacting a rescue plan to put everything back together. And so he comes, invites them into confession, for those of you who know the parts of Genesis that precede this in this chapter, and then he necessarily punishes. And this is what he says to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And just some things we want to do business with here, and there's so much more we could say, but when it says that, that Satan will eat dust, there's layers to that. And one of those really important layers is that he's going to be totally defeated. Because this phrase is used in Isaiah 65, later on in the Old Testament, and in Micah 7, and it is, it is used in the context of completely, utterly defeating someone. Most of us don't talk like this anymore, but when I was a little kid growing up, if you were in a race with someone and you really wanted to put them in your place, their place and talk a little smack to them, you'd say, you're going to eat my dust. And that's what this means. That Satan, what he has tried to put into motion is going to be defeated and is actually going to be reversed. And this is the plan. And this is all singular this time. An offspring of a woman will come and he will crush Satan's head, and Satan will strike his heel. So basically, they will kill each other. And what's being described here is really what the entire Bible is about. It's God's rescue plan to redeem and restore and repair that which is broken, all wrongs eventually being made right, shalom being restored the way God always intended things to be, right relationship with him, right relationship with one another, right relationship with self, right relationship with land. And this culminates, as many of you know, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, where Satan strikes his heel and takes his life, but where he utterly defeats Satan by rising back to new life and then offering that life to all who will choose to love him and know him and follow him. This is the gospel. This is why it's good news. And this is why the only way to be saved is by faith alone and Christ alone, based on the grace of God alone, on his fulfilled promises. And just for the sake of time, we're gonna move very quickly through this, but it's really fundamental that we understand this. Because I will talk with people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and they'll be somewhat offended by even the suggestion that they somehow need to be saved. But ironically, all of us understand the need for this. Our culture actually, intuitively, to some degree, understands the need to be saved. Why? Because we've got problems. You watch the news lately? You been on social media at all? I mean, you pick the, the, news, the news source, even your own perceptions of what you see when you drive around, when you talk to people, when you interact with people. The world is a mess. And so if we could just get the right person, whoever that is, into political power, then that's going to fix our problems. 
or if we could just educate people. Man, people just, they need to be educated. If we could just educate people more, that would solve our problems. No, if we could just leverage the right technology, if we could truly make technology work for us, that's what would solve our problems, or we'd become even more focused than that, and we say, you know what, if we were just more awoke, if we were just more concerned with racial justice, then that would fix all of our problems. Or actually, if we would just be more tolerant, if we would be more tolerant of one another, that would fix our problems. Or if we could just be more accepting, that would solve our problems. Or if we just had more money, or just had more resources, or if we could just get power to the right people, or created more opportunity. Do you see where this is going? The common denominator that runs through all those things. And by the way, there's reality to all of them. Depending on how you define things and, and you know, set the boundaries on things and what have you, all those things are significant and necessary, but is that really what's gonna save us? And the answer is no. As necessary as those things are, as important as those things are, when we begin to look at them in the way that I just presented to you, do you know what they're actually becoming? Functional saviors. And our culture turns to them again and again for salvation. And you know what the problem is? None of them are a deep enough change. God does not want to make us nice people. He wants to make us new people. He wants to give us a new nature, a new core. And it changes everything. And my friends, our culture, and I know just from the number of you in the room and who are watching this or listening to this online, you're trusting the wrong Savior. You're putting your hope in something that isn't going to be able to truly do what you're looking for it to do. And we're back to the core problem that we started this message with. In our brokenness, we take these things that oftentimes are really good, necessary things, and all those things I talked about, again, have their place for sure. But we look to them to do something they cannot truly do. And that's to save us. You and I need an inside-out transformation. We need to get into the Word of God and allow the Word of God to get into us and cooperate and partner with the Holy Spirit as He makes us into who we were always created to be. And by the way, God's plan is always better than yours and mine. I'm not sure I believe that. You're beginning to put your finger on the problem. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And as they do so, we're going to do business with, with what we've heard here this morning. And I'm going to skip to a slide here. We are collectively positioning ourselves, deliberately so as a church family, in this season of 40 days of prayer to listen to God and to hear from God. And with what we've done business with here this morning and are hopefully are still doing business with, I'd like to create just some space here for us to do just that, to listen 
to what God has for us. So if you're able to, wherever you are, for those of you in the room, listening, watching online, if you can bow your head and close your eyes just so you can concentrate and take some space to listen, let's do business with these, these necessary questions that these spiritual truths ask of us this morning. Who are you? Whose are you? Or to put it even another way, who or what are you looking to for your salvation? There is so much coming at us. So many reasons to be anxious or even fearful. So what are you anxious about? What are you afraid of? Can you name that? What does it look like for you to trust God in the midst of that? How is he asking you to trust him today? Lord, would you continue to help us to listen to you and to hear you. Lord, for some of us in our spiritual journey today, we, we own the fact that we have been looking to other things, really, to be our Savior. We've been settling. When you are truly the one who saves us, and changes us and transforms us into the people you've called us to be. So Lord, I pray for anyone who is listening to this, watching this, who knows they have not made that choice, that they would choose you as their Savior this morning, that they would invite you into their lives as their Lord and Savior by simply saying, Jesus, I need you. I want you in my life. Lord, there are some here who love you and follow you, but they've never declared that through baptism. I pray that this morning they would choose to do just that, to get baptized, to declare to you and everyone here, they love you and want to follow you. And Lord, it is so easy for us to be consumed by fear and anxiety in this broken world that we live in. Lord, would you help us to be able to trust you in that, 
to name those fears and take them to you. And Lord, would you help us to trust and obey you even when it costs us, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make sense. Would we remember who you are, what you promise us, and the identity that we have in you. Lord, thank you that you have freed us from sin. Yes, we struggle with it, and it's difficult, but we have the ability through the power of your Spirit for those of, you, those of us who know and love you to choose to trust and obey you. So God, would we celebrate and sing that now, that we're no longer slaves to sin. We serve and follow you. That's our true identity. Would we celebrate that now? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you, for those of you who may be thinking about this, those of you watching, listening online, we still have lots of water. It's warm, and we promise we'll keep it warm for you. It's still, we've still got towels and clothes. You get down here, and we will baptize you in the next service because there's nothing better than being a child of God. That is who we are. That is our true identity, and you absolutely can applaud for that because that is reality. And since we're talking very deliberately so about our identity this morning, I'd like to leave you with these words from the book of Titus in the New Testament. You've heard this before because I've quoted it before. It's one of my favorite verses. It's verses three through seven, and I want you to listen to your identity, what you used to be and who you are now if you know and love Jesus Christ. Because you see, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. And it's because of that mercy and His grace that we are saved through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That is your identity. That is who you are. So let me pray his blessing over us as we go live that out now. Lord, I thank you for this time of celebration that we have had that we celebrate the reality that you are a God who sees us in our sinfulness and selfishness and brokenness and you draw near to us and you offer us an escape from that and you promise us something better and you want to bless our lives so would we not settle for anything less than remembering and living out that we are saints, we are children of God. For those of us who know and love you and I pray for anyone who's listening or watching this who doesn't know you, they would want to know you because there's nothing better than knowing and loving and being known and loved by the one true God. Would you empower us by your spirit now to go live this gospel, this good news, this life-changing message out by what we say and what we do? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. amen. So go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. 
That's gracecc.net.